0: How many people here have ever been on America Online? You had an AOL email address. Raise your hand. Okay. a uh, Good number of you. That's interesting. Yeah, I did too. And uh, I think AOL is now my junk mail email address. And, and the reason that it is is because it always sucks me in with these salacious news stories, right? I mean, there's, there's always something that's going to tweak your brain and go, I got Find out about that. Forty-five minutes later, you go back to clearing out the junk mail. You know, I mean, I just so so I hate AOL for the Huffington Post and other things like that. Uh, but back in June, there was a fascinating article. I don't know if you saw it or not, but it had to do with uh, this hearing that was occurring in Washington D.C. A former Canadian defense minister, cabinet level post was testifying at this thing, that uh, he believes that, that extraterrestrials really live among us. And I'll, I'll just read this to you. Canada's former Minister of National Defense, Paul Hellyer, testified at the citizen hearing on disclosure last month in Washington, D.C., that aliens are living among us and that it is likely at least two of them are working for the U.S. government. Any guesses who that might be? Collier asserted a number of interesting things during his testimony and a video of what he said has gone viral. Here are some of the highlights. At least four species of aliens have been visiting Earth for thousands of years. Some of the aliens hail from the Zeta Reticuli, the Pleiades, Orion, Andromeda, and Altar star systems, and these different aliens may have different agendas. Alien enthusiast Linda Moulton Howe, he says, is correct that there are live ETs on Earth at this present time, and at least two of them are working with the U.S. government. So, here's the deal. I actually do believe that there are aliens living among us, I, I get it from the scripture. you may be surprised that um, that there are aliens who are living here on earth, exiles from their places of origin, from their real homes, but not the extraterrestrial kind that you're thinking of right now I'm talking about those of us Christians who have citizenship in heaven. We've been born again by the saving work of Jesus Christ, and we've been created now with a, a different spiritual DNA than we had before and that other people on the planet currently have. We are indeed, in a spiritual sense, aliens, and we've been here for thousands of years. And more than two of us work for the government. The world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon us from heaven's open door, and we can't feel at home in this world anymore, sang Jim Reeves. So, seriously, no matter how... Awkward you felt in junior high school? No matter how out of place you might feel now at college or in graduate school or in your place of employment with your coworkers, with your bosses, in your neighborhoods, in your apartment building, when you accepted Jesus, you just got weirder. However weird you were in the minds of your friends who didn't understand you, you became extremely peculiar people. You became some kind of strange spiritual royal priesthood according to the Scriptures, and sometimes your robes are showing underneath your normal everyday clothes. Because you don't think like them, you don't talk like them, You don't act like them in normal, everyday situations. You're called to a different constitution. You're called to a different way of life. You're called to love and to sacrifice. And the world around you is all about lust and looking after number one. So we've become exiles. Scattered around the world, looking for exiles who are just like us, with whom we can have some kind of understanding, some kind of sweet friendship that goes beyond just the physical, beyond just the intellectual, beyond even the emotional, down right to the very core of our being, down to the spiritual. If you've ever wondered why you can feel a camaraderie with other Christians, no matter how different than you they might be, that's why. Because you're both exiles in a foreign land. Now, the apostle Peter writes a letter to exiles. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're switching gears This week we're going to be going into the first letter that the Apostle Peter writes. For those of you who don't know, we think the Apostle Peter dictated the Gospel of Mark to Mark. That's mostly Peter's story. And now we're going to go into his letters to Christians who have been scattered around an area north of where he was. Do we have any? Okay, there we go. There it is. Okay. So, I thought it might be a good idea if I gave you a little background on who Peter, the apostle, was. Most of you are going to know. Some of you aren't going to know. So, I'm just going to go through it. So, here we go. And I'm going to stop using the word go. So, Peter is one of the most prominent of all the apostles. He was kind of a rough-and-tumble guy. He let his emotions lead before he engaged his brain very often. Um, He said things that he meant way too soon. And sometimes that was a great thing, and sometimes that was a terrible thing. He was clearly one of Jesus' favorites. Cut it any way you like it. Jesus, I think, loved Peter's big heart. And I think, I, I think he loved the fact that what you saw in Peter was what you were getting. I mean, it was Peter. He wasn't putting on any false airs. Peter's true name was Simon. Jesus obviously didn't like that too much. So he changed his name to Cephas in Aramaic, which means rock. And so they called him Peter, which is Greek. Okay. Peter was a follower of John the Baptist before he met Jesus, and he was actually introduced to Jesus by his brother. His aggressiveness naturally kind of made him a spokesperson for the other 12 who were kind of reluctant to say something stupid. Peter would just go out there and say it. Jesus pulled Peter into his inner circle. He had uh, Peter, James, and John that he pulled in to witness the raising of a dead little girl, Jairus' daughter. He was also part of that little trio of guys uh, up on top of a mountain when Jesus was transfigured before them and they saw him in some kind of heavenly glory that he didn't walk around the earth exhibiting. His robes became white as lightning and there was a cloud that enveloped him and they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him, or something like that. So they were on the inside track of what Jesus was thinking and doing. actually was able to find a scrapbook from the Apostle Peter's house, and they've digitized it. So I thought I'd show you a few of those uh, photos right now. Go ahead, Bruce. So this is actually Jesus meeting Peter. Peter's a fisherman. Jesus is saying, come and follow me. And uh, I put that in my scrapbook. Okay, next. Peter is uh, having a hard time paying his taxes one time. The tax man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, uh, how can we not paying taxes? And so Jesus tells Peter, go down to the lake and, you know, cast out your line and bring in a fish. And inside the fish you're going to find money and you can pay your taxes and mine, Peter. And so Jesus paid Peter's taxes. How often do you wish that Jesus would pay your taxes? All right. Our next one. Uh, This is one of the famous ones. Uh, So, so the disciples are out on a boat, and uh, Jesus, who was not in the boat, comes walking to them on the water during a storm. And um, Peter, the impetuous one, says, "Lord, if it's you, ask me to come out there with you, because who knows why? I'm thinking because it's a storm." boat might sink. He's figuring it's safer with Jesus than with these dudes. That's what I'm thinking is going through his head. Other people think that he just wanted to walk on water, which may be true. But Peter goes out there and then gets afraid, loses his faith and starts to sink. And then Jesus has to pull him up out of the water. How many Christians have had that experience? Oh yeah, Jesus, we're going to go out and do this for you. Oh, and you help Jesus, and then he rescues you. So that's why I like Peter, because I can identify with that. Peter correctly identified the Messiah, actually, at one point. I mean, he, he is the only disciple to have blurted out, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Peter, this wasn't revealed to you by anybody except by the Holy Spirit. But of course, the other famous story about Peter is his denial. After all this time with Jesus, he denies even knowing the Lord. After the Lord told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny even knowing me, Peter goes, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen. No, I'm thinking... You are such an idiot, Peter. Has Jesus ever lied to you? This guy has raised people from the dead, cured the sick, healed the lame, you know, made one little boy's lunch feed ten thousand plus people. Like you think he's lying to you? But see, I'm like that. When Jesus says Mike you're not as mature as you think you are. I want to say, oh, I am too. I am too. I can, I can, I can lead this church. You just watch me. And then guess what happens? Hopefully no articles in the Westward. But I understand being a fallen man, trying to do the will of God. Sometimes you just blow it. The good news is is that Jesus doesn't leave Peter in his brokenness and his weeping. The next picture, I'm sure this is one of Peter's favorites, is where Jesus pulls him aside at a breakfast that Jesus had actually cooked for them on the shore of the lake, and he reinstates Peter. He restores Peter to his apostolic authority, and he says, I want you to go out, and I want you to feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs, because Peter, you understand what it's like to fail, and I need somebody as the head of the church who has the rock of faith that sometimes crumbles and knows where to come to be restored. So I think this is one of the coolest things, and and the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, and and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches. He preaches powerfully on the day of Pentecost. So powerfully that 3,000 people in Jerusalem, the city that had just got done killing Jesus, 3,000 people came to faith in one day. You talk about church growth. I mean, what do you do with children's ministry when you have 3,000 adults 3,000 probably just men come to faith in one day. I don't know what you do. But Jesus thought Peter could handle it. And he did. Though so with the Holy Spirit, Peter is nothing short of awesome. And he continues becoming more and more awesome. You know, when it first started out, Peter's a Jewish guy. He had Jewish sensibilities. He had Jewish bigotries. But Because of what the Lord does in Peter's life, we see him begin to embrace foreigners, Gentiles, the outcasts. We begin seeing him do all these things that Jesus taught him to do for other people selflessly. So much so that at the very end of his life, the story goes that he went to Rome to encourage the Christians who were being persecuted there under the emperor Nero. And Peter ends up getting captured and they're going to crucify him just like they crucified Jesus. But Peter says, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Instead, crucify me upside down. And here we have a painting by Caravaggio that shows what it might have been like for Peter to be crucified upside down because he would not identify himself even in his martyrdom with his Lord. Just fantastic. Fantastic humility. What a journey the man had. And he's the guy that wrote the letter that we're going to read. Let me set the stage for you here a bit. We think this is probably mid-60s A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's what that stands for. Um, Nero is now emperor, and a persecution of sorts has already begun. It's not the full-fledged... Christians in the Colosseum, you know, those kinds of horrid games where he had scores like, you know, lions 150, Christians 0, you know, like it's not that. It's not yet the time where Nero would strap Christians to poles, dip them in tar pitch light them on fire, and set them upright to light the road he was going on. It wasn't persecution to that fever yet. But it might be hard to, uh, to work, to ply your trade. It may be difficult uh, to get some respect in the marketplace. Things like that were beginning to happen there were rumors going on about Christians and how weird they were. They ate blood and they drank blood and ate flesh at every one of their gatherings, you know, because they would take communion and they said it was the body, the, the body and blood of Jesus. Or they said the Christians were, were incestuous because they would marry their brothers and sisters in the Lord. This weird stuff like that was going on. And so Peter begins to write to Christians who are scattered around the empire and are beginning to go through some persecution. Some of these people probably actually aliens to begin with. They weren't Jews. They weren't even natives of the places where they were. They actually were national aliens. You know how they're treated in this country. Illegal aliens, right? I don't know about you, but when you read the Scriptures, I kind of keep reading over and over again, to be kind to those people, compassionate to those people. That's what we're called to do. That's one of the things that makes us weird compared to the rest of the world, who says, you know, no, no. I don't care. Just put them in a box, ship them back to Mexico, ship them back to Guatemala, ship them back to Poland, to Ireland, to Greece, to Italy, ship them back to Israel, ship them back. I mean, you know, let me tell you something. Foreigners are a problem. And my family's been in trouble with foreigners ever since we came to this country. That's a joke. So we're strange like that. And then on top of it, we become Christians. And that's even weirder. So, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to do two verses, that's all. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read through it once, and then uh, we'll come back to this again. Peter identifies himself to begin with, and then um, he identifies his audience, and he comes back with a greeting. I like the way he identifies himself because it's pretty just plain and simple. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, or aliens, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, this is a very, very theologically dense two verses. Like one sentence. We have, all wrapped up in here, the apostleship of Peter, the doctrine of election, we've got the doctrine of the Trinity, we've got sanctification, we've got justification, and we've got grace, and we've got peace, shalom. The two, I mean, like, grace is like the big New Testament word, right? Kadis in Greek, and shalom, peace, in the Old Testament. I mean, those are like the cornerstones of both of those books. This thing is, it weighs a ton, and it's like this big. And so we're going to try and unpack it a little bit. Now, the first thing that should catch your eye is that he says God's elect. He's talking about you. If you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, if you're a believer, whatever your nomenclature is for that, He's talking to you, talking about election. he's saying, you know, this letter that I am going to write is for you. It's not for the non-Christians. It's for you. And he says that you're elect, that God has elected you. Now, does this mean that someplace in heaven there are Well, there's one big giant polling booth where God goes in and then votes on who's in and who's not. Is that what this means? Because we want to know what's it mean to be God's elect? Well, it says later on that you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ because you're sprinkled with His blood. So, Somehow, God, in his infinite knowledge, has looked down the corridor of history, and he's seen little you, and he said, I choose him. I choose her to be mine forever. Now, instead of being a stumbling block to you, that should be a cause of great comfort and great encouragement. Because, look at it this way. Who do we think we are to be able to out-sin God's mercy and grace? Do you think that there is anything that you can do, once He's chosen you, to do something so reprehensible, so evil, so destructive to others and to yourself that you could somehow get beyond his forgiveness in Christ, his mercy and his grace. Understand what these two words mean. The mercy is like you don't have to pay for the sins that you've committed. And grace is, oh, and on top of that, God's going to give you a present for no reason at all. The doctrine of election is one of the great comforts of the Scriptures. Now, why were we chosen? Here is something to really, really pay attention to. Why are you chosen? What is the object of being chosen? The object of being chosen is what? To be obedient. Be obedient. You're not chosen to a smug position of, I'm saved. And the rest of the world can go to hell. You're not chosen to a smug position. You are chosen to loving action. You are chosen, chosen to obedience to Jesus Christ. And last time I checked, Jesus Christ is all about sacrificing himself for the benefit of those who want to kill him. Didn't Jesus say, if you want to be my disciple, then pick up your cross and follow me? Does that sound difficult to do? You've not been chosen for your own comfort for your own security, as much as you've been chosen to be a vessel to show the uncompromising love of God, the unmerited love of God to those who hate you and hate Him. That's what you've been chosen to do. We are called to action, not position. I know people talk about finding Jesus. I had a long two-year struggle to find Jesus. Two years. Halfway through, I decided, forget this, I'm going to find out so that I really understand how foolish this Christian thing is. I'm going to study the Scriptures so I find out that it's not true. So nobody understands looking for Jesus like I do. And I used to say, I've found God. I've found Jesus. It's kind of like what my dad used to say to me about Boys and girls, men and women, dating romance when I was young. I was trying to understand the whole guy girl thing, and my dad said, Understand this, Mike. You'll never understand it. And then he says, A man chases a woman until she catches him. A man chases a woman until she catches him. Which means, gentlemen, that no matter when you started your wooing of the fair lass, weeks before, maybe even months or years, she has been carefully crafting that initiative on your part because she chose you way before you chose her. Election is like that. God chooses you way before you get around to choosing him. And it isn't until you've walked with Christ for quite some time that you begin to understand that. Because at first, it's all about the struggle to seek, find, knock, and have a door be opened, ask, and so that it's be given to you, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of the doctrine of election. Now, if you're like me, you're going, okay, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Is, is is that is that are those like cities in in the Ukraine? Where are those? All right. Let's have a map up here. You'll see. So it's basically uh, modern day Turkey. All right. So that's where he's writing. I'm not sure if Peter is writing from Jerusalem, which is down lower right, or if he's writing from Rome, which is upper left in Italy. But he's writing to those churches, and he's writing along the kind of a route that a messenger would have gone, actually backwards if he was in Jerusalem, but I don't, it doesn't matter. He's writing to the people there. And, and this is the interesting thing for me. This area, this part of Asia Minor, was called the land of thousands of churches. It was the most Christianized piece of real estate in the whole world. It's even mentioned, uh, you know, in Revelation. Jesus talks about some churches that are in there. Is it Christian today? No, it's not. It's not. And I just find that fascinating in a way that kind of goes back to the passage and says, we are not saved. We are not chosen to sit on our spiritual butts. We are chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And that can happen to this place. So, let's not weary in doing good. Let us press on as people in a race who are trying to claim a prize at the end. It was Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's go back to the uh, Scripture. Now, we begin to look at the Trinity here. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's one part of the Trinity. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that would be the second part of the Trinity. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, he would be the third part of the Trinity. Three persons, one God. Three persons, One God. I am not going to do any kind of weird youth group analogies about ice, water, and steam. Because I don't think they're accurate. It's more like what they call at seminary modalism. You go to seminary to learn these words, right? You're going, modalism? Was that like second wave ska, or where was that in the pantheon of musical artists? Wasn't that part of the German Expressionist? I don't even know. So anyway, no. Modalism, at least in seminary terms, is when you have a wrong look at the Trinity. Where you would say, well, there's only one God, but he shows himself in three different ways. So sometimes he shows himself as if he is the Father, and sometimes he shows himself as if he is the Son, and sometimes he shows himself like the Spirit. That's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. That's actually heresy. Three persons, one God. A tri-unity, a holy community is what the Godhead is. I don't know how to... uh, really even talk about it, because it's a great mystery. And, and I really appreciate my Orthodox background, because we just call it mystery. We don't get it, but it's there. In the Orthodox Church, when you go to do the sign of the cross, you take your right hand, you take your thumb and your first two fingers, and you put them together like this, where the three go into one point, and that's your Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as one. Now, that automatically makes these two last two fingers come down into your palm, which is the place traditionally we've figured the nails went when Jesus was crucified. And then the Orthodox people will say that that, that means Jesus is being totally God and totally man. That is, divine nature and his human nature were together in one, and that becomes a second point and goes in your palm. So when you do the Greek sign of a cross, it's kind of like that. I want you all try that just real quick here. Okay. Three, become one. Jesus is totally God and man into your palm. And then you go to the top of your head in the name of the Father, the Son, right? And the Holy Spirit. Right shoulder and then left shoulder. Which is backwards from the Catholics. But, you know, they do it that way just because they're not Catholic. No. Talk to a Greek Orthodox priest and they'll tell you that the Catholics broke away from the Orthodox Church, and that the Reformation was just what goes around, comes around. All right, so um, anyway, that's the Trinity. It's, 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 a, it's a mystery. I don't get it. I mean, the closest I can come maybe is like maybe a marriage kind of analogy. It's kind of like marriage. I mean, Mary and I are one somehow Our beings have become, the two have become one in the sight of God and the sight of you all. But we're two distinct people. You know us? We're very, very different. Right? But we're one in marriage. And that might be the closest I can come for an analogy. But the Godhead, the Trinity, is so intertwined, so loving It's almost impossible to understand where one stops, other begins. They agree. They love each other. They they are engulfed in in a loving fire that is eternal. And here's what is so wonderful, is God in his perfect unity, his loving triunity, is calling us into community with him to experience what it means to be one with Him. And it's more than just that. But not just be one with Him, but be, be one with each other. Do you think you love community? It was God's idea. He loves it more. That's why you crave a place where people know you and where you know others. The depth of your being where there is no friction Where there is harmony in thought, we all crave that. I crave that. I can't. I mean, I can imagine a perfect place, right? Heaven, sort of. Can it? I I sort. Actually, I can imagine a perfect place much more than I can imagine perfected people living with you all in heaven for eternity, and never having a disagreement, always being on the same page. That's divine, folks. (laughs) A church like that? I mean, most churches can't agree in the color of carpet for the sanctuary. In heaven, it's going to be. When, you know, I'm going to go in a little bit farther detail, just for you guys. No, I'm not. (sighs) I want to talk more about this whole idea of, of Trinity, you know. Come and talk to me. We'll talk Hebrew, okay, but not now. But I'm going to close with this. St. Patrick, when he was trying to win the Irish to Christ, came up with uh, a symbol for the Trinity. It's the shamrock. You've seen the shamrock, right? It's always all over everything Irish, especially on St. Patrick's Day. But you thought it was good luck, like lucky charms. No. It's about the Trinity, and the Irish became fascinated with the idea of the Trinity. They wove it into their, I don't know what they call them, runes, or whatever those intricate weavings are. Flip one more if you would, Bruce. Oh, you didn't put that one in there. Oh, okay, great. Well, very often you'll see, you'll see these kind of intricate line drawings. Very often you will find the Celtic knot, right, three-in-one. What's that Irish bar here? Is it the one that's it's got, yeah, there's one downtown that's got basically the Trinity symbol for their logo. They probably don't even realize that. But St. Patrick so wanted the Irish people to come into communion with God that he taught them the idea of the Trinity in clover that was all around them. God still desires for us to come into unity with him through the saving work through Jesus Christ, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, into a relationship with God the Father, He still desires that for every person. And I want you to know that He still is doing that today right here at SCUM. There are people who have recently just found out what it means to come into communion with the triunion God. And so I've asked uh, Tina Ray, our famous drummer, to come on up and to share her story coming into community with the board.
1: Thanks for that. (laughs) That was my roommate who started that. And she's actually not my sister. Common misconception. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my name's Tina, if I don't know you. um, And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about... I guess how I got here, uh, scum and also following Jesus. Um, so I grew up in a house that my dad was actually an alcoholic all of my childhood. Um, so he drank almost every day for probably about 16 years. So um, that was kind of what I grew up around. So it was a lot of anger and destruction. I'm just going to pull this off. So it was just kind of like our house was consumed with anger and um, destruction and I just saw a lot of that from a young age, that's all I remember seeing. Um, so I, I kind of learned to be tough when I was younger, because I had to be. Um, it's kind of like if I wasn't tough, is was, was either that or I don't know if I was going to make it, um, just with what was going on around me. So I think really early on I, I learned to kind of disengage from things, um, like emotionally and just kind of, you know, um, well that's how it is, and just deal with stuff, and that's kind of how my family was too. Um, so it, that, I guess I, yeah, I was just disengaged when I was younger. So I kind of hit junior high. And um, I guess that's when you start, like, or at least for me, is like when you start going over to friends' houses, and you'd see weird stuff, like they had pictures of Jesus on the wall. And I'm like, I've heard of that guy. I don't really know him. Um, and I would just notice how different my friends' families were than mine. Uh, you know, they, they had more money than we had. Uh, they seemed to function correctly. Um, so it was just very different. And I started to think, man, I'm I think I'm kind of weird or I, you know, like what I grew up with is very different. So that just kind of like set in deeper and deeper as I grew up that I I felt kind of marked, like different um, than all the kids that I knew because of what I grew up with, what family I came from. And so it's just kind of, I felt doomed for the kind of the same thing. It didn't really make sense, but I was just like, well, this is, you know, my family, this is what we do. Um, So I started drinking when I was probably about in seventh grade, uh, very pretty early on, I guess. and I got into it pretty quickly, just with my, uh, you know, my family history. It just it escalated quickly. So even by eighth or ninth grade, I was drinking every weekend for sure, and sometimes even at school. Or, um, you know, I was, I was just really into it. I just ran with it. And at the same time, I, uh, I found music, which was really great. I started playing drums when I was in like seventh grade. And it was like a weird but safe way to kind of engage my heart in ways um, that I didn't really know how to before. And so I think I became passionate about it very quickly because of that. Um, so I was in you know, every musical group and marching band and drumline and it seemed really cool at the time. Apparently it's not now. I don't know. I just learned this recently. Um, so yeah, so I got really into music. And so by the time I hit high school, I was really just about, you know, living rock and roll and. Um, I would sneak out of my parents' house and go to shows. Uh, I knew all the guys in town, and they would give me whiskey, and I'd carry their guitar case into the show. And I thought it was super cool. Um, but, yeah, I just i kind of looked at the kids I went to school with, and their, like, houses with scripture on the walls and their nice yards and stuff didn't make sense. And I'd go hang out with these guys who were, like, dirty and tattooed and singing their hearts out in bars every night and drinking whiskey. And I was like, that resonates with me. I get that. Um, I, st- I didn't really get the other... And I think growing up, I never could deny the existence of God. I think intellectually, looking at oceans and amoeba and, like, photosynthesis, I couldn't be like, yeah, that makes sense how they told me in school that that's a random mathematical process that started itself. And, you know, and, like, think about my fingers, and I'm like, wow, what a cool accident. You know, like, it just, it never made sense. And so I think, I don't know, I just didn't want to think about it, though, because, like, when I saw Jesus on the wall at my friend's house, they're kind of like awkward neighbors, and I'd see him, and I'm like, I don't know if you want to talk to me. I don't know. He's just kind of weird. I see him from time to time in books and stuff. Um, but I just kind of thought Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. So um, I guess probably about my senior year, I got pretty heavy into drinking, like I said. Um, probably five days a week, sometimes seven days a week. Just crazy. I'm not really sure how I passed school or didn't die for that matter. Um, but I kind of got to the end of it. Uh, I guess I explored that route to the fullest, and it just turned up empty, like all that stuff does. And so I went through this weird transition um, going into college of, yeah, that's really empty. I don't think I can do that lifestyle anymore and live. And it was I just knew there was something more, but I didn't know what it was. So I finally got to college, and that intellectual itch of, I think God is real, just got louder and louder, and I couldn't really ignore it. Um, and about the same time, one of my buddies from Drumline, actually, um, his name was Jake, he uh, graduated a year behind me, came down to UC Denver down here, and um, we used to like smoke pot together in high school, and then he like, would come back and visit me from uh, up in Fort Collins, where I live. And he you know, started hanging out with his campus ministry, and I started looking at him weird, like, what? Like, I don't, I don't get it. But he, um, at, when he first got to college, he decided to start following Jesus. And I was like, well, that's weird. Because I remember when we thought it was really fun to just smoke pot and play drums. So it was just, it was very different. And so um, I guess uh, around the same time, I was wandering in Barnes & Noble one night. And I saw this book, and it was called Blue Like Jazz. And I was like, cool, must be about music. I think one of my friends told me to read that in high school. Um, I think it was the weird kid who liked Jesus in high school. I couldn't remember. But (laughs) anyways, I was like, I've I've heard of this book. Um, I should pick it up. So I picked it up, and I, I started reading it. And this was kind of the first time that... Um, turns out it was about Jesus, by the way. Um, this was kind of like the first time that I heard um, that Jesus actually cared about kids who weren't white, upper-middle-class, rich kids, who had nice families. This was the first time that, um, I guess, I, if you want to Christianize it, heard the gospel, but essentially that, you know, um, Jesus loves all of us no matter what family we came from. And so that kind of, like, blew my mind, like, a lot. And it was really overwhelming, actually, and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I didn't really have anybody I, like, felt comfortable talking about it with because people were still calling me to, like, go party with them, and I didn't really want to be like, so do you know Jesus? Can you, like, tell me about that? So I just kind of swallowed it for a little while, and the crazy thing was, like, at the same time, Jake, who's, like, down in Denver um, really trying to figure out what it looks like to follow God, uh, came back one time, and I guess how he puts it, uh, as God put it, really on His heart to talk to me um, about Jesus, and He tells me He told me afterwards that He was like so scared. He's like, I thought I was gonna crap my pants. Like it was just the scariest conversation He ever went into. Um, but we were sitting in a hookah bar up in Fort Collins, and I don't remember what we talked about, but I just remember He brought up God, and I just I jumped at it, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I've been I've been dying to talk to somebody about this. I think this is real. Um, I just remember distinctly that day. And so two weeks later, Jake calls me and he's like, hey, like, what are you doing over winter break? And I was like, well, I don't know. Christmas, American, I don't know. Um, and so he was like, well, do you want to go to Atlanta? And he just kind of, he tried to cover it up a lot, but he was basically trying to invite me to a passion, uh, a passion conference, which is a Christian conference they put on every year out there. And so he tried to play it off like it was cool. He's like, yeah, there'll be like music and food And music, and uh, do you want to go? And I was just like, and um, I don't know, I just, it was the first time in my life I kind of felt like there was this crossroad of like, if I don't go to this weird thing, I don't know what it is, but I just know I should go, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And I've never felt so distinctly like that. And so I was like, I don't know. And he's like, okay, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for everything. Like, I'll buy your food, just like get in the car. And so... A little crazy, but I got in the car with all these kids um, that I didn't know that, like, probably most of them went to youth group and church and all these things I never did, and it was really intimidating. Um, But I got in a van with them and I drove across the country and uh, at the Passion Conference, there's about 18,000 college students. So standing in that, um, it's a big, like, maybe not the Georgia Dome, but another big building like that. Um, Standing in there, like, uh, listening to Chris Tomlin play, which I was like, I don't know who that is. with 18,000 other students, um, was crazy. That was my first worship experience. Uh, but that was the first, like, I I had been like this growing suspicion that like, man, what I read in that book is real and I can't really deny that God isn't real. And I think he's trying to tell me something. And I think that's why I just drove a thousand miles across the country. Um, but just in that room, I overwhelmingly realized like, okay, this is real. Like Jesus um, he loves me, and he cares about me. He never forgot about me, even when I was growing up in that house um, and It was all leading up to this point where he was showing me how he 's just kind of been pulling me along to um show that he cares about me too and so that was really in that room where I decided to um follow Jesus and dedicate my life to to getting to know him to figuring out more of who he is um, It was super crazy. I was that kid that everybody looked at and was like yeah she 'll never she 's never going to be a christian um, so i don 't ever think that because here I am. Uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, after that, I uh, I went back to Fort Collins, and it was crazy. I had my whole life planned out. I was uh, doing a lot of audio engineering and um, traveling with some bands over the summer, and I, was, I got into this fancy music school, and I'd been planning that since I was 15. I became a Christian, I come back, and about a month later, like, all those doors shut. It was crazy. Um, the school that I'd been working on with my scholarships, like, my scholarships weren't working out. The job I thought I had didn't work out all this stuff, and I think if I didn't have this new hope in God, I would have been, well, I know I would have been crushed because those were the plans that I had for my life. And so I was talking to Jake about it, and he was like, well, why don't you, you know, apply to UC Denver? Like, they have an audio program. You already know all of us, um, and they were my community. So it was another really long story, but eventually I just, I ended up here, um, literally because I think God dragged me here, and um, that's how I found Scum. I just kind of wandered into. But immediately when I I walked in, I was like, oh, this doesn't look like all the other churches that I've walked into and felt really scared. So um, I guess that's kind of my story of how I ended up here and on the drum set up front. All
0: right. So Dave, why don't you uh, go ahead and take your place back up there on the uh, platform. And I'll just close with a prayer. We've got uh, probably about four more songs. Then we're going to stay for a potluck. So uh if you want to stay, it would be great Good to know us. Uh, we have food and music. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you don't have to go to Atlanta, exactly, right? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for being present in Tina's life and working behind the scenes to call her to yourself. Unfortunately, in this world, it makes her even more awkward because now she's got a new spiritual DNA. But Lord, I am so, so grateful that you have chosen her from before the foundations of the earth. And you've placed her here with us, for community, to be with you in your trinity, not just for a little while, but for eternity. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who makes this all possible by his death on the cross. Praise be to him. Amen.